really could be a class for anybody. Um, the idea behind this class is last year we had a class that really was about witnessing our ambassador class and how many people just by a show of hands was able to make any of those sessions. Many of you did. Well, this is kind of like part two in effect because after somebody gets saved, you have to then disciple them, help them, be a blessing to them, help them grow up in the faith. And as you work in the church and minister in the church and be a part of a church body, you're going to be interacting with people. So this is kind of like the part two is, okay, how do we now help people deal with people, minister to people, those that are professing Christ and trying to get their lives in order? And these are principles I'm hoping by the end of today you'll walk out with some principles that are going to be a blessing to somebody else, but also be a blessing to yourself, because everything we're saying today is something you need to first directly apply to yourself, and then you could turnkey it, and I used a buzzword, and then you could use it for and with somebody else. So um, let's have a word of prayer, and then we will jump in today, all right? Everything's good over there? All right. Lord, we love you today. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, for being that, as I read this morning, that pillar of fire by night and that cloud by day, Lord, to direct our steps in the darkness, Lord, and to direct our steps in the light. I pray, Lord, you'd lead us today, Lord, guide us into all truth. Raise up some folks, Lord. Give us a heart for ministry, a heart to work with people, a heart to apply these principles to ourselves. Lord, who is sufficient for these things? Nobody is, Lord. I can't teach this the right way. I confess it openly, Lord. I'm not ashamed to say I need your help that we need your help. Uh, we ask the Lord that the Holy Spirit would make us those able ministers we need to be. And I pray you just help us to have a good time together. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians a lot. That's going to, like I said, kind of be our textbook. 2 Corinthians 3. All right. 2 Corinthians 3. We'll do one session, then we'll take a break, and then we'll do a second session. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we just want to start off with, all right? And I didn't have like any handouts, really didn't see fit for them. I'll, I'll tell you when, you know, when things are important, I'll try to emphasize, but just as introduction, um, 2 Corinthians 3. If you're saved, you are in the ministry, right? We have developed this Laodicean idea that the person that stands behind the block of wood is somehow the minister and you're just the laity, and I'm somehow the clergy. That doctrine makes God sick, right? He actually calls it a, uh, the doctrine of Nicolaitanism, and it makes God nauseous. He hates it, he says. So I remember when Pat Dean was retiring May back in 2007 in the church in Staten Island, hey brother, he kind of stood up in front of the whole congregation and he said, it's all ministry, beloved, it's all ministry. The way you kiss your wife in the morning, the way you go to church, the way you hand out a tract, Everything's ministry, and you're all ministers today. So you're in the ministry just like I'm in the ministry. I may have the big mouth that has to stand up here and be a big mouth, but you're just as much in the ministry as anybody else in here. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Lord, Paul is writing to that church in Corinth, and he says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart, and such trust have we through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, right, we need God, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us 
able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. I just want you to notice there that the Lord wants to make you an able minister. And let's just break down what does that mean, able minister. Well, I'm an English nerd, so let's kind of break down the parts of speech, shall we? Able is an adjective. It's a descriptive word. It means you're capable. It means you're adept at something. It means you have the power to perform a given task. All right? A minister, that's a noun. Minister means you're a servant. You're a helper. You're kind of like Joshua, who is Moses' minister, the Bible says in Exodus 24. Now, if we take the word minister and we make it into a verb... To minister, that means then to help someone, to serve, to aid, to relieve, to give medicines. That's what it means to minister, to give medicines. So let's put it all together for the people in the room. If you're saved, you're supposed to be able to minister. You're supposed to be able to help people with this book. And many of us remember our dear founding pastor, Mel Sabaka. And I remember him not as well as some of you remember him, but I remember him taking that numb hand of his and pounding the pulpit because he had no feeling in the hand. And you'd sit there and cringe, and he's whacking the pulpit with that hand. Was it the right hand or the left hand? Which hand was it? Was it the right hand? And he'd pound that pulpit with that hand. And I remember him saying, the ministry is people. It's people. It's people. And guess what? The ministry is people, and the book you hold in your hand is the medicine chest of principles that you have to be able to minister, give to people, right? That's the ministry. So my question is, as we launch off, how adept are you at taking the principles of this book and helping someone else? That's like the focus of this this class. And to become better ministers, we are going to study 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is the manual for ministry. And to understand why I'm saying that, we need to first understand the relationship between, I might write on this board a little bit, I know it's small and you're, some of you are far away, but we need to understand the, the relationship between, that's a terrible color, all right, uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. I'm not even going to bother with that yet. Uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The first thing you've got to get is the relationship between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and then you understand why I'm making the claim that 2 Corinthians is a manual for ministry. 1 Corinthians is a book of reproof. It's a book where people were doing something wrong. It's a book of dealing with sin. And it's harsh. Let me show you what Paul had to say to these people at Corinth that were steeped in very gross sin. Now, we've all got sins that we're working on, but this was gross sin that it was worse than the lost people they were practicing. And it says in verse, chapter 5, verse 1, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you, from among you. 
For I verily as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. So now Paul's going to give his judgment. Here's the reproof. Here's the harshness of dealing with sin, which has to happen first. Four, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, so it's a church thing, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, we're not going to get into all of what that means because some of it's unclear as to what that means, but it means at least this, that there was some harshness that Paul had to do to deal with this person's sin. He had to deliver this person over to Satan. Now, if the church is supposed to be where we're safe, that looks like he was removing that person from the fellowship, withdrawing his prayer, perhaps, withdrawing that protection that the church would give to that person, casting that person out, that that person might feel some pain that would be an impetus for that person to repent. That's 1 Corinthians. That happens first. The reproof has to happen first. 2 Corinthians, if you go to chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians now, if 1 Corinthians is a book of reproof, then 2 Corinthians is a book of repentance and restoration. It's not about dealing with sin anymore. It's about directing that saint. Because the blessing is, Paul does this harsh thing that hurts that person in a good way, and that person repents. That person wants to get things right with God. And that person says, I want to come back to the fellowship. I want to get things right with God. Can you help me rebuild my life? That's what 2 Corinthians is about. Somebody that's making something right and needs your help to kind of grow in grace and repair the damage that sin had done. The reproof has happened. The correction has happened. Now we need to help that person. Notice chapter 2, verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. He's talking about his first letter. He didn't enjoy that first letter. It was tough. Five. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. To sufficient to such a man is this punishment. He's talking about the guy that got put out of the church, which was inflicted of many. You guys all put him out. So that contrarywise, he ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. This is about helping. That's why we're talking about 2 Corinthians as our manual for ministry. The person has dealt with the sin. Now they need direction. Now they need help. Now that person needs to be built up. You can't direct a saint, help him, until you deal with his sin, which might hurt him. All right? We could fix all the outside stuff, but we've got to deal with the root cause. And that is uncomfortable, that is painful, that is often awkward, and there's a place for that. But that's not what this is so much about. This is about, okay, now this person wants help, wants to get right, wants to come back. What are we supposed to do? But I want to say this to you. If you're going to help someone, here's a disclaimer. This is all introduction still. If you're going to help someone, he or she has to first change his thinking about his sin. We can't get to any of the stuff we're talking about today and apply any of the stuff we're talking about today if that person still sees nothing wrong without he or she is offending God. 
You take someone that's like messing around with drugs, right? That's a, unfortunately something we all maybe have that's touched our lives at some point. And we know this until that person acknowledges at least that, you know what? This stuff I'm doing is killing me and hurting me and other people. Until that person is willing to change his or her thinking about sin, what are you going to do? You're helpless. But when that person does turn around, that's when we can jump in. So this is a principle I'm going to say over and over again. You cannot help someone more than he wants to be helped. So that person first has to be willing to come back, first has to have changed his mind or her mind about sin, has a willingness to come back and get right with God, and that's where all these principles come running in uh, to help us. That's where we need the book of 2 Corinthians. And we're going to deal with chapter 1 right now, right? Probably the first session we'll talk about chapter 1. And in chapter 1, I'm going to lay out for you nine principles. I'll put a key word up here to help you remember. Nine principles about chapter 1. And if you're taking notes in your Bible, or you're taking notes on a piece of paper, you're taking notes on a, on a computer, whatever it is you're taking notes on, here is the heading for chapter 1. Chapter 1 is the ministry defined. Chapter 1 is the ministry defined. In other words, chapter 1 is going to give us all these general principles about dealing with people, ministering to people, being a blessing to people, and we're going to lay out nine of them. We're just going to walk right through chapter 1 and get this introduction to ministry from the Holy Spirit of God. Let's start in verse number 3. All right, You're not going to like the first one. All right? <clears throat> Grace, uh, no, verse 3. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. Now, I'm going to set you up. Do you want to be an effective minister? Say amen. amen. Okay. First principle. If you're going to serve God, you're going to suffer. That's where the book starts. That's where the manual for ministry begins. You know, back in the old days of like iron work, right, when they'd forge a sword or forge a tool, to forge that tool, you know what they'd do with that metal, that piece of iron? That metal would have to feel the heat and get hit and get beaten and get smacked. Why? And then get shaped into the tool that that guy was trying to make it to be. There's an offering in your Bible. In Leviticus chapter 2, he talks about the meat offering. And the meat offering was a picture of our service for Christ, something that would be meat for somebody else. You know what that meat offering was supposed to be? Fine flour, something that was ground and pressed and refined. And I'm going to say this to you. The first thing our manual for ministry talks about is suffering, because you're the tool who's got to feel the heat. 
You're the tool that may take the hits to get shaped. You're the flower that might be ground and refined and pressed that you might be able to serve and bless somebody else. And the first principle that we're laying down is this, that if you're going to serve, you've got to go through some things. And you're going to go through some things. And if that scares you, oh, so be it. But it doesn't mean you're all going to get diagnosed with cancer. It just means that you're going to go through some things. You know what we laugh about sometimes? At least I laugh about it. How does a Catholic priest counsel a husband? You know, I mean, you're not married, you don't have children, and you don't have a regular job. How are you going to tell me what it's like to be married, have children, and have a regular job? <laughs> we say, well, then how can you help someone else? Like, how can you help someone else if you've never experienced any hardship, any difficulty? Look at verse number 4 and verse 6. If you read verse 4 and verse 6, the things you go through are to help you help other people. We can't lose that perspective, brethren. We can't lose that when we're going through something. I will be, you know, total disclaimer. I hate the fact that my son is as patient at Sloan Kettering. I hate it. I hate that he has to get operated on in a couple of weeks. He's running around fine and healthy. It drives me crazy. I'll be just totally, totally transparent. But you know what? Since my son and my family has gone through a little of that stuff, guess what? I understand some things now. You understand some things now that you've gone through stuff. Got a different perspective about death, different perspective about sickness, different perspectives about betrayal, different perspectives about all the stuff people wrestle with when you have felt it a little bit. Look at verse number eight. You know why the Lord really lets you suffer? Want to see what Paul said? For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Paul, Paul wanted to die sometimes, folks. Paul was just like, man, Lord, I can't take this anymore. I mean, it's not, that's not an unspiritual, foreign feeling, you know, because Paul had that feeling. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raised the dead. You know what affliction does? Affliction trains the minister to come to the end of himself. Amen. Affliction is where you get put in a place where you have nowhere to look but up Amen. and nowhere to turn to but God. And the Lord's like, now we can work. Because until you're leaning on your arm, you're not really an able minister. But when you really learn to fall on God, suffer. That's all it says is suffer. So the first key word is suffering. Can you just give you one disclaimer, though? Can you go to Job 34? I want to put, in, in, case you, in case your heart is thinking God's a sadist or some kind of, you know, cruel person, Job 34. Look at, just, you might want to add this verse into your pipe so you could smoke it. Job 34, 23, speaking about God. And this is a good counterbalance to what we just said. Job 34, 23. It says, He will not lay upon man more than right that he should enter into judgment with God. Even though the Lord is going to maybe let you go through some things to make you a minister, I want to say this. God is never going to give you too much. Amen. He never will give you too much because if He gave you more than you could handle, you'd have a reason to accuse Him. So you're going to see people go through things. You're going to go through things. Let that verse be the counterbalance for yourself and others. That you know what, Lord, it may be rough, but you can get me through this. I, you can give me the grace. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians. Let me give you the second principle. All right, Suffering is where we start. Chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 10. 
It says, Who hath delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. The second principle is this, that there is always, always, always hope. There is always hope, no matter how bad the situation looks, no matter how hopeless the scenario looks, there is always hope. You have got to believe that. If you don't believe that, then just go out for breakfast. There's no reason to learn how to minister to people if you don't think there's hope that God could do something. And the reason why I'm pulling out this verse is because notice in this verse the three tenses of salvation. Past, present, and future. See it? It says, God delivered us from so great a death. The Lord took care of the penalty of your sin at Calvary. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) And it says, and doth deliver. He takes care of the power of sin in your life every day. Gives you strength, gives you ability, gives you ways of escape right now. And then it says, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. And one day, the Lord is going to take care of the presence of sin in your life in the future. When that trumpet sounds, you'll never have to worry about sin ever again. Think about it. If the Lord can do all that for us and will do all that for us, you must never lose hope that God can help. Because he helped you in the past, he helps you every day, and he's going to help you in the future. So never lose hope in your own life or somebody you're working with that God can't do something because there is always, always hope. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now when you, when you lose hope, here's what happens. When you lose hope, I mean, I could have my chapter 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or as tink- a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Above all else, the minister must have charity. You know what charity is? It's God's love in action. Love is this way, charity is this way. If you're loving God, There's supposed to be charity coming out this way. You You want to know the attribute, one of the qualities of charity is? It's down in verse 7. Here's the qualities of charity. Charity beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things. Having charity means we never lose hope that God can help someone. That love and action means, you know what? I still have hope that God can do something in this situation for you if you're willing to do it God's way. You have to remember, you have to believe that there is always something you can do with God to make things right. Family's got kids that are going wayward. There's something you can do. Uh, Marriage going to hell in a handbasket. There's something somebody could do. There's always something somebody can do with God to make things right. Doesn't mean it's always going to come out rosy, but there's always something you can do. You are never hopeless and you are never helpless as long as you're breathing and you've got this book. There is always hope. You've got to believe that. Because when we lose hope, you know, here's what happens. We're two street smart. Oh, I know what he's like. Or I know what she's like. And that skepticism is not a spiritual gift. 
That skepticism does not come from the Spirit of God. That comes from the flesh, that comes from the world, that comes from being hurt by people. But if you're going to be a minister, you've got to maintain charity. Because when we lose hope that God can help somebody, how can we possibly minister? If I don't believe that you could actually turn things around, what is the business I'm going to have discipling you or helping you or answering your phone call? I should just say I just give up and throw in the towel. I'll see you on the other side. We've got to hold on to hope because God says charity hopeth all things. Go back to 2 Corinthians. How's that so far? So far so good? All right. Well, these are just general things about the ministry all in chapter 1. All right. Number 3. All right. Go to verse 11. Verse 11. Ye also helping to get... This is 2 Corinthians 1.11. I apologize. Ye also helping together by prayer for us that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. Here's what I want to also say. The able minister must be a prayer warrior. This marker stinks. Right, I'm trying to write pray, but this is a terrible marker, so I'm going to all day. All right, let me see if I got another one. Pray. The able minister has got to be a prayer warrior. That's a great way that you can help if you can pray. He says, helping together by prayer. You know what Hudson Taylor said? He said, it is possible to move men through God by prayer alone. How's your prayer life as you intercede for people and get between God and men for people, which is what a minister always did in the Bible, right? Go to 2 Corinthians 10. Let me show you something. Let me show you something. 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. The Bible says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The able minister needs to be able to get a hold of God to help. All the stuff we've got, Bible verses, tracts, principles, uh, uh, church, men's meetings, ladies' meetings, discipleship, one, discipleship, two, all the weapons we've got at our disposal, guess what? They're only mighty through God. Unless God moves in that person's heart and does something in that person's life, nothing's going to happen. So you've got to be able to get a hold of God. And before you go to men for God, you've got to be able to go to God for men. You've got to speak to, that, speak to God on their behalf. If not, you're going to make a mess because you're dealing with some powerful weapons. You've got some powerful weapons at your disposal. If you're not learning how to use those in that private prayer closet with God, you're going to hurt somebody. Listen. Some of you got, some of you are packing at home, right? Some of you might be packing now, I don't know. But you know what? If you never learn how to use that weapon, if you never learn how to use that gun, right, by listening to instructions, you know what you're going to do? You're going to hurt somebody. You're going to hurt yourself and you're going to hurt somebody else, right? The weapon is, the weapon is just a weapon. It's, it's what it does in the hands of the person that wields it. And you've got to, those weapons are made mighty through God. If you never learn, if you don't pray about the weapons of our warfare, you might hurt somebody. You might take that Bible that's a hammer and hurt somebody with it because you didn't sanctify what you were supposed to say in prayer. Praying is big. What is Jesus Christ? Isn't Jesus Christ the model minister? Isn't he? What's he doing for us right now? 
He's praying. He's interceding. He's beseeching God for us. Night and day, he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So you know what you want to do if you want to really be a help to somebody? Pray. Pray for them. That's number two. That's number what? Three? Number four. Go back to 2 Corinthians, number four. All right? Again, these are general principles about the ministry. We are down by verse number 12. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12. Paul says, For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you word. Next principle is this, and I'll explain. I'm going to write the word testimony up here. And here's the principle. As you work with people and minister to people, let your testimony be that you always did your best before God. He says the testimony of our conscience is that we just tried our best. Right? Let the testimony be that you just did the best your conscience told you to do and to be. You know what conscience is? The word conscience is two words put together. Con, which means with, right? What? Arroz con pollo, right? Chicken with rice, right? Con means with. You like that, right? <laughs> that was not in the notes, <laughs> but it's making me hungry. <laughs> All right? and, con and science means knowledge. So your conscience is that inner knowledge that you have, that inner understanding. And not everybody's got the same conscience in here. We've got some different understandings about things. A young Christian may not have the same conscience towards God about somebody that's maybe a little older, but it's what you know and understand. Now look at Acts chapter 24. Let me just show you the testimony of Paul in some spots here. Acts 24. If I'm going too fast, just like give me like a slow down gesture or something. All right, Acts 24. Acts 24, 16. Paul's giving his testimony. He's defending himself before these accusers. And in Acts 24, 16, he says, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Paul always tried to do his best before God and men. He just, that, that way he wanted that to be his testimony. I did the best I could. Like Jesus said to that lady, she hath done what she could. Right? That should be your testimony as you minister to people. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy is uh, Paul's protege now. And he's going to give Paul, he's going to give Timothy the same advice. 1 Timothy 1, look at verse number 19. 1 Timothy 1, verse 19. He tells Timothy to be holding faith. Right? Hold on to the things you know about God that you've learned from my preaching and teaching, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. He's saying, Timothy, you need to know what the Bible says, but you also have to have the right conscience, not violate your conscience, not do things you know to be wrong. Right? Because when you start doing things you know to be wrong, you know what's going to happen? You're going to end up making your life shipwreck. Those things you know about God will end up getting twisted and perverted and you'll end up going in the wrong direction. You know why so many heresies pop up? Not because of an intellectual issue, but because of a heart issue. People go sideways in doctrine, not because they, <coughs> excuse me, 
They got persuaded out of it because something was going on in their heart and the devil just fanned that flame and helped move them aside and turn them aside. But if you keep your conscience clear and do what you know is right before God all the time and keep your heart right with him, you know what? He'll keep you in sound doctrine. You won't be a castaway. Look at chapter 3. Look at verse 19. No, 3.9, 3.9. He says it again to Timothy. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Right? You know a lot of stuff, Timothy, that I've taught you. Make sure you keep your heart right and you don't violate that conscience because that's going to turn you aside. And Christian, keep your conscience clear that you're doing things and helping people the best way you know how. Can I just comfort you with this? You can, and you're in a situation helping a son, a daughter, another Christian in the church house, a family, a marriage, they ask you for advice. You can only do what you know is the best thing to do. You can't be somebody else. You can't be Mel Sabaka. You can't be Mike Veach. You can't be Pat Dean. You can't be Peter Ruckman. Right? You've got, you're that person God put in that situation. So your testimony should be, Lord, the best thing you showed me, the best way I know how, I tried to do what you told me was the right thing to do. It may work. It may not work. That person may love you, hate you, may think, well, so-and-so would have said this. So-and-so would have said that. So-and-so wasn't the one in that moment. You were the one in that moment. And there's been plenty of moments over the last few years where I've been like, oh my goodness, like what would this person do? What would that person do? I need, to, I need a lifeline. You know, I feel like who wants to be a millionaire? I need, like, I need another lifeline. But you know what? God says, son, you're in the driver's seat now. You've got to lean on me and just do what your conscience between me and you says is the right thing to do and let the chips fall where they may. Let that be your testimony. They may walk out and leave, but let your testimony be that I tried to do what I knew was right to do. The testimony of our conscience. That's where we should be. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians. Let's go to number 5. Number 5. Again, it's interesting these are all in the book of 2 Corinthians right in the first chapter. He's giving you like an overview of the ministry defined here. And here's the next one. It's in verses 13 and 14. For we write none other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge, and I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end. As also ye have acknowledged us in part that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. You know what he's saying here? Don't ever lose sight of the judgment seat of Christ. That all of your labor and all of your help in that day will be a cause for you to rejoice. When you see the people that you've worked with, you've prayed for, you've wept over, standing around that throne, casting their crowns, it will be worth it all. That's going to be the day that we rejoice. There may be sorrow now. There may be pain now. There may be difficulty now. I know we all inwardly said, amen. But you know what? There's going to be a cause to rejoice. Don't lose sight of that. There's a pastor I love and I've learned a lot from named Bob Alexander out in Missouri or Missouri. And um, he says this a lot. And it's funny. He goes, there's three types of people in every church. People who know what's going on, people who don't know what's going on, and people who don't care to know what's going on. And guess what? If you've been called to serve, you're going to minister to all kinds of people. And as you work with all kinds of people, you're going to feel sometimes like your impact is making a difference, not making a difference, or they couldn't give a flip about what you think about God or the Bible. You know what you've got to remember? There's going to be a day when your impact will be rewarded. 
There's going to be a day that God's going to measure your service and the spirit of what you did and say, well done, thou good and faithful service. Go to servant. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just a few verses about this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse number 19. Paul's writing to this young church. He only had seen these people for three weeks. He didn't know them very well. And he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? He says, For ye, for all of you, are our glory and joy. You've got to see people as the reward. You've got to see people as the treasure. You've got to see people as the one that God's going to say. Remember that? Remember that knucklehead that you discipled? You didn't think anything was going on? Look at him right there. Look at him shining over there. Right? You remember that, 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 that advice you gave and the person went on and you didn't know if they ever took it? Look what they did with that. Look at all the people that got saved after that person that you helped that person learn how to... You know, all that stuff, you got to start looking at it that way, people. The ministry is people, and people are, are part of that reward. Go to 1 Corinthians 3. Wouldn't that be something that you maybe had a part in somebody else? And they go on and do something for God or be something for God, and you had a part to play in that by God's grace? That's part of your reward. That's a cause to rejoice at the judgment seat of Christ. Here is the definitive passage, right? Here's the definitive passage on the judgment seat of Christ. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, that's what gets rewarded. Gold, silver, precious stones. You say, what's the gold? That's the character of God. Gold, deity. Silver is the price of redemption. That's what Jesus Christ did to purchase your soul. Precious stones are people. You're rewarded for what you did with God's character and what God did to save people and how you impacted people with who God is, gold, and what God did, silver. That's easy what's going to be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. What would you, you know about God and what God did for people and how did you try to impact people with who God is and what God did? You know, people are symbolized by precious stones on the high priest's breastplate. If you've ever read the description of the high priest, he's got the tribes of Israel represented as precious stones on his heart. And in Malachi chapter 3, people are called jewels. In the day when I make up my jewels, God talks about people as being jewels. If you never see the treasure in helping people now, how can you expect to have any treasure then? You've got to start changing that perspective, folks. You will get hurt. You will get maligned. You will be betrayed. You will think nothing is making an impact. Don't lose sight of the day when Jesus Christ gives out his reward. You will rejoice in that day. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 1. Let's go to number 6. Each of these could be a study in itself, but I'm just trying to throw some mud at the wall. Hopefully something sticks. All right? Number six. All right? Let's read verse 15. And in this confidence I was minded to come unto you before, that ye might have a second benefit. 
If you're going to minister and minister to people and be an able minister, you've got to experience and want other people to experience the second benefit. The second benefit. Jesus Christ gave his life that you might enjoy the first benefit. Salvation, amen, forgiveness, a home in heaven, the Holy Spirit living inside of you, never being left or forsaken by our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the first benefit. That's because Jesus gave his all for you. The question is, will you give your all to Jesus Christ that God might enjoy the second benefit and see the second benefit in you? The first benefit comes from everything God did. The second benefit comes from what you're willing to give. And you're trying to, that's the end game of ministry. That's the end zone we're all trying to move people towards. We're trying to see and show people that it's worth laying your life down now that you might experience the second benefit. Oh, salvation is great and wonderful, but that's not where God wanted to stop. That's where God wanted to start. That's everything we're trying to do on Sunday mornings, discipleship, conversations, men's meeting. We're all trying to move people to being willing to lay their lives down. I'm not saying as a martyr, but just being willing to lay their lives down that they might see the second benefit, victory, the glory of God in their life, God using them in an extraordinary way. That's the end zone of ministry. That's, you know, uh, sometimes I watch uh, young kids play basketball. My kids are a little older now, so they just hit each other when they play basketball. But you watch little kids play basketball, you know what they get fascinated with? Just passing the ball around. <laughs> ah! And just dribbling, right? They all want to dribble. They, you know, pass the ball! The coach is going, pass the ball! And they're like, ah, I got the, look what I got! Look what I got. They forget that you're supposed to try to get the ball in the hoop. <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> My kids were on a team one time and the coach had to grab everybody and say, guys, the goal of the game is to score, right? <laughs> and the goal of ministry is to get them towards the second benefit. It's not just, okay, I fixed your marriage problem, I helped you with this doctrinal question. No, we're trying to move people to see that Christ is worth it to lay their lives down and give them their all so they might see His all in their lives, the second benefit. But you've got to experience that first in your own life. If you never come to that place, it's hard to teach somebody else about that. So every principle we're saying here is something you first got to taste and experience. You've got to come to the place where you say, you know what, Lord, I still got to work this job. I still got to do this. I still got to do that. But I want to give you all of me. When you get to that place, then you could talk to somebody else about it. Number seven, right there in 2 Corinthians. I'm going to call it this. Seven is... Uh, Let's see. Let's call it growth process. All right? Here's the principle, and then I'll read the verses. There is a growth process that God uses to build His saints. And if you're going to minister, you've got to understand God's growth process and see where people are on that growth process so you don't push them too far or you don't hold them too back. You've got to be able to discern where they are on this growth process. And verses 17 to 22 have four stages of this growth process. You can note them as you see them here. First part is in verse 22. It says that God hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. The first part of that growth process is that the Holy Spirit seals you the day you get saved. 
God plants His Holy Spirit inside of you, borns a new creature in there, seals that Holy Spirit in there, and puts that Holy Spirit in there to help you be able to learn and grow and be the Christian God wants you to be. That's the start, right? Number two, verse number 20. Uh, We'll take for verse 16, actually. And to pass by you into Macedonia and to come again out of Macedonia unto you and and of you to be brought on my way to toward Judea. When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness or the things that I purposed? Do I purpose according to the flesh that with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Second part of the growth process is the Lord gives you promises from God's word to help you grow. He seals His Holy Spirit inside you, that's first, when you get saved, and then He gives you a book of promises, 1,189 chapters of promises, something like, I forget how many verses, like something like over 31,000 verses of promises. Why? So that you can grow into what God wants you to be. Which means, let's say somebody just gets saved. They're at stage one. You know what they need now? They need to know the Bible. They need to know the promises. They need to learn things about God. I'm not taking that brand new babe and sending him to the mission field, right? Which is what happens in a lot of places. No, you've got to understand where somebody is on the growth process and what they need at that level of growth. You're not going to take your newborn and give him a stake, right? You have to understand where is this person. Number three in this process is verse 21. Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ. You know what stage three is? You get grounded. You get established. The root word is stable. You get stabilized as you learn and apply this book. Right? Somebody's going through discipleship. They just got saved. You know what you're trying to do? They've got the promises. Show them how to apply them so they can get grounded, so they're not tossed to and fro. That's what they need at that stage. Number four is still in the same verse, 21. Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God. Stage four, after you're established in the word, the Holy Spirit anoints you and sends you out to do some kind of work. Four stages to God's growth process. Seals you with his Holy Spirit, gives you his Holy Spirit, gives you his promises, establishes you, and then sends you out for service. You've got to understand where people are on that growth process. Pastor Mel used to say, the Lord never sends green troops into battle. I need to see who that person is by the Spirit of God in prayer, discern where they are in that growth process and see what they best need in that stage to continue growing in grace. Don't get ahead of God and don't drag behind of God either. An able minister has to see where someone is on God's growth chart. Does that make sense? You wouldn't ask a five-year-old to babysit her little brother. Say, well, they're older. Yeah, but that doesn't mean they're in a place where they can babysit their little brother, right? They're not ready for that yet. And you shouldn't ask a Christian to do or expect a Christian to be what he or she is not ready for yet. 
at all. I mean, Eli, I use this illustration a lot, but this, and I've said it to maybe you if you've heard it, just listen to it again. I will never forget this young man named Joe Romano. I will never forget this kid. It always broke my heart. He was a young man. He had a lot of zeal. He got saved. I really be, he went out with Eli and I. We took him on the ferry, took him witnessing. Delicate, light, easy stuff. And this one knucklehead, dingbat, stupid, hell-bent, devil-possessed, lunatic, so, quote-unquote, brother in Christ, wanted to, like, you know, push him to be all God could make him to be. So on a night where they were coming home from the rescue mission, this kid was, you know, like many of us, an ex-Catholic, made this kid, pushed this kid to get out of the van. They stopped in front of a Catholic church and start preaching at the people as they're coming out of the, out of the mass. Now, you know what that was? That was just stupid. That was just stupid. That's still, that's stupid for us to do. I'm not even doing that. I'm not standing in front of, I'm, that's just asking for trouble. That's just asking for somebody to call the cop. If, if that's who you are, go for it. Whatever. But that was, this was a young kid. He was, you know what happened after that? He was never the same after that. It was just like a burden put on him to be something he wasn't ready to be. That was like spiritual warfare he wasn't ready to take. And it just his whole life spiraled out of the control. And now, I don't even know if that kid would, record, would call him. He's a young man now. I don't know if that guy would even say he's a Christian anymore. He got so jaded and angry at God and so jaded and angry at Christians. And he figures, I'm doing all this for you, God. You know, where are you when my grandmother's sick? Where are you? you know what? He wasn't ready for that. The kid had to fall in love with Jesus, grow in grace, get the promises, get stable, and then maybe God would have made him a missionary somewhere. But this dingbat who wanted to put a notch on his belt and say, look what I made this brother do, this pharisaical nut job, I can't say enough about him, uh, just strips my gears about that, ruined a brother, ruined a brother, because he didn't recognize where he was on the growth chart, because he didn't have enough discernment to save a, save a nickel. I don't know, it was just a mess. Sorry about that. I was a little preaching in there. I just had to get that in my system. So recognize where people are. Hey, if you're saved like five years or less, you know what you got to do? Get the promises and get stable. Fall in love with the Savior. Grow in grace. Get some roots down. And God will give you. Listen, God will use you when it's time to use you. We're not supposed to push people along. <laughs> Take that six-month-old. Walk. Walk. I said walk. This is how you walk. It, they're just not ready for that. Right? We're, we're, we're a teacher, right? We study cognition and cognitive development. I'm not explaining to a seven-year-old the symbolism of the great Gatsby. Right? Their brain is just not ready for that. I could say the same words to them as I say to a 15-year-old, but they can't grasp a, a symbol, a theme, right? the metaphor. What is that to them? No, you've got to recognize what people are. Verse 22. Here's our next. Number eight. That was not all in the notes. All right? All right. Um, I'm putting the words worth it for number eight. I'll explain why. 22 says that God had also sealed us and give us the earn, given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. You know what God did when he saved you? If you're saved, say amen. amen. God said, you know what? You're worth it. Amen. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit inside of you as a down payment. And I'm going to come back and get all of you when I blow the trumpet. He saw that. Now, you're a wreck and a mess. And God said, you know what? But you're still worth it. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit inside of you because I'm going to make something of you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to transform your life if you let me. I'm going to bring you home with me one day. You were worth it to God for him to invest in you. Is another brother or sister worth it to you to invest in them? 
See, the Holy Spirit is the earnest. He's God's down payment for the whole body. And God thought you were worth giving you His Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ. You know what you do when you go out and you buy a house? First you ask Eli, and after he says no. But when he says yes, <laughs> when he says yes, you know you got a good one, right? <laughs> when we picked out the house, he gave me 20 no's, and on the 21st yes, when it was green light, I said, put the deposit down, you know, let's do it, right? But anyway, when you see that house that you think is worth it, it's not perfect, but you put a down payment on it because you know what? I could make something of that, Amen. right? I know i got to fix this. i got to change that. I'm going to rip this out. I'm going to do that, right? What do you do when you walk in? They say, oh, this, you know, I walked in. This wall's coming down. This is going over here. We're going to put that over there. But you realize it's worth it to invest in to make it what you know it could be, amen? Do you see the brethren as a liability or as an opportunity? Are they worth it? It may take investment and work and sweat and tears, but will you invest in them to see what they could be? Can you look past their problems and see the potential of a brother or sister in Christ? You say, ah, well then, what kind of minister are you? Because that's what God did for us. How could you not do that for somebody else? And finally, number nine. Number nine is this. Here's the principle, and then I'll read the verse, and then we'll take a break. All right? Is this making sense so far? It's not really a survey of the doctrine of 2 Corinthians, but just some practical things. All right? Here's the principle. Be a helper of joy, not a hound of saints. Be a helper of joy, not a hound of saints. Verse number 23, he says, Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy. For by faith ye stand. The last principle we're going to touch on in this chapter is being a helper of joy, not a hound of the saints. No pastor, no elder, no deacon, or other Christian has dominion over anyone else's faith. Nobody owns you. Nobody controls you. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll look at this. 1 Peter chapter 5. It's important to remember. Now, if Paul can say this, you could say this, right? Because if Paul could say, I don't have dominion over your faith, we would probably like, you know, salivate if Paul was walking through here and be like, what do I do about this, Paul? What do I do about that, Paul? You know, this great man of God, right? You know, we just, and it's good to respect people and esteem people. But Paul's like, look, man, I'm not your master. (laughs) I can't tell you everything about everything. I'm just another servant. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's the best he could tell him. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter is another one that had a big mouth. And uh, he was always putting his foot in his mouth. But when he got a little older and got a little closer to God, he says this. He says, The elders, in verse 1 of chapter 5 in 1 Peter, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being ensamples to the flock. We are not called to police people. We are not called to micromanage each other. It is Jesus Christ's church. 
Give them the Bible, give a good example, and the rest is between them and God. When things have to be dealt with, they're dealt with. You know one reason I hated COVID, and I hated the pandemic, and I hated that whole time? It turned everybody into snitches and spies in the church. This person was that person, that person. And you guys were doing family trees, I think, on your chalkboards in your house. And, you know, the six degrees of separation. How far was this person? And you'd tell me about it. I said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't care. Like, what do you want me to do? Like, this person was around somebody who was around somebody who was around somebody that might have possibly sneezed. I don't know. <laughs> Decide for yourself. I don't know. And we get that way. I can't spend my energy lording over your walk. I got my own walk to worry about. I got my own family to worry about. I got my own problems to deal with. I can't be micromanaging you under a microscope. The Bible says, Jesus said, Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considereth not the beam that is in thine own eye? Romans 14, he says, To his own master he standeth or falleth. It's really between them and God what they ultimately do. That brings us back to the principle we said, that you can't help somebody more than he or she wants to be helped. Right? You can give them the word of God, you can lead by example, but ultimately, to God, they're going to stand or fall. And I want to just go back to 2 Corinthians 1. We'll say this, and then we'll pray and take a break. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, that last verse, 24, that last phrase is great to remember. God put it there as a reminder for the uh, end of this overview of the ministry. He says... For by faith ye stand. The ministry runs by faith. You have no guarantee that what you do will give any return. You have to, by faith, cast your bread upon the waters. And hopefully, Lord willing, after many days, you'll take it up again. And what, how does that tie down to what we're saying? If the Lord was big enough to save that person, then you've got to believe he's big enough to change that person. You can't control people. You can't lord over people. You've got to be willing to give them the space to stand or fall before God. You know what that does? That gives, that's the liberty. That's the peace. And that's the last thing to remember, an important thing to remember. Be a helper of their joy, not a hound to the saints. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll take a break. Lord, thank you for this day, for this time. Pray these principles might make us more effective ministers. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.